I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about what's going on in politics, the Republican Party, the aftermath of Donald Trump, we've got Josh Dawsey, star reporter for The Washington Post with us. Josh, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Andrew. So, Josh, the latest piece that you're a contributor to for The Washington Post is this fascinating piece about North Carolina and the coming Senate race or primary even for Richard Burr's seat that he's vacating. And in this piece, you talk about how the Republican Party is at war with itself over whether to stick with Trump, whether to not stick with Trump. Can you talk about what you guys found in your reporting, which is you guys talk about how it's indicative for really the rest of the country? It's a conundrum for the Republican Party because if you look at what the data shows across the country, a large portion of a party is just still entranced by the president. They are, you know, wedded towards him. They're not moving away. The riot on January 6th did not change him. You know, his approval rating hovers, you know, close to 80, 80 percent in the Republican Party. And then you have luminaries in the party like Mitch McConnell and others who say, you know, as long as Trump is the head of a party, it's going to be more difficult to win general elections. And you look at 2000s, 2016, under his presidency, you know, they lost the House, the Senate, and the White House. And, you know, you now have unified democratic control of the United States government. So you have a challenge. You have some of the party's leaders that are trying to move the Republican Party away from Donald Trump in a bid to have a more formidable shot at winning general elections and taking back the chambers. And we have a lot of the party that wants to stick with Donald Trump no matter what. And there's a balancing act there for a lot of the, a lot of the top folks who are trying to chart the party's course going forward. So do you think that they've even come close to finding that balance yet? Or is this going to be a struggle that plays out over, you know, a considerable amount of time here? I mean, are and are they running out of time? I don't think they found that balance yet. I mean, that said, there's only been, you know, about five weeks since January 20th when Joe Biden took office. So there's certainly plenty of time before 2022. But you have a former president who is making noise already, you know, with a searing statement about Mitch McConnell. He's doing endorsements. He's going to give his first CPAC speech this coming weekend in Florida, in Orlando. You have a lot of palpable movement from the former president and wanting to stay involved and wanting to be the leader of the party. I mean, I took to Lindsey Graham earlier today, who spent the last two days down at Mar-a-Lago, and Lindsey Graham says, you know, Trump wants to be the leader of the Republican Party. And whether anyone can dethrone him from that or whether there's uh, appetite to do that past, you know, some of the folks who've already spoken out, particularly Mitch McConnell, is unclear yet. 
And is Lindsey Graham going to stick by Trump? I mean, he's gone back and forth a couple of times, but that's not unusual from the senator from South Carolina, your, your home state. Where's Lindsey Graham come out on all this? Well, I read a piece in the Post this weekend about this exact topic. Lindsey Graham has vacillated on Trump uh, a number of times, as you said. He went from calling him a kook in 2016 and saying that the Republican Party would be destroyed, and rightfully so, if they nominated Trump to being one of his most vociferous supporters throughout the presidency and throughout the most recent impeachment trial. Lindsey Graham is now saying that if Trump wants to be the nominee in 2024, it's his for the taking, and that no, the Republican Party cannot move forward and be successful without Donald Trump uh, heavily involved in it. So Graham is certainly leading the pro-Trump uh, wing of the Republican Party. That's amazing. Now, Donald Trump, as you say, is scheduled to speak this weekend at CPAC, the annual conservative conference. What do we expect Donald Trump to say during his speech? It's supposed to be about what he wants the Republican Party to be going forward, along with a sharp repudiation of Biden's immigration agenda. We think that Stephen Miller, his former speechwriter, is involved in the crafting of the remarks, uh, along with others. And it's going to be his first reemergence. Besides the you know, brief television interviews he's done and statements, no one has really seen him at the podium or in public for, you know, about six weeks. And I think it's going to be his uh, clarion call that he wants to stay in charge of the party. Here's his vision for the party. And he will get a rapt audience at CPAC. Uh, you can imagine that these are the parties, you know, most grassroots faithful. They come down to see, you know, a lot of Trump figures. And the fact that he will be there, you can imagine, will, will be quite the uh, draw for, for those folks. That said, you know, I, I should point out that, you know, it's an in-person large event in the middle of a pandemic. So there certainly are some risk with having it. But he's the main attraction. There's no doubt about that. And he's going to be speaking in April at the RNC's main donor retreat in Palm Beach. So you have a speech to the grassroots in early March and then, you know, to the party's kind of upper echelon, their richest supporters in, in April. So he's certainly making it clear that the party is not moving on without him. And is he expected to say that he is the nominee in 2024? As people say, he is not expected to say that, though we have seen on many occasions, Andrew, that. What they put in the teleprompter is not often what comes out of his mouth. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I will not have any sort of predictive powers of what he will say. But if you talk to the people around him, uh, they say he is not going to be declaring for president this early. Okay. So now it's interesting. As you said before, his approval ratings within the Republican Party are around 80%. That's actually down a bit because, you know, prior when he was actually in office, they were among Republicans, they were up in the 90s. So January 6th and the aftermath of the 2020 election where he declared that he had won obviously had something to do with the drop in his approval ratings. And we've heard in your reporting and other places that some Republicans have had enough. They're moving on. They want to leave the party or they simply want to regroup under the Liz Cheney wing of the party, the Mitt Romney wing of the party. Is there evidence that, you know, Trump may not be willing to continue to put the work in to keep his part of the party engaged and, and maybe this drop in Trump will continue? I don't think there's evidence of that yet. I mean, there certainly has been a concern that folks have had who are his biggest supporters. You know, does he want to continue flying across the country to do rallies? Will he be interested in continuing to push forward 
his own political image when, you know, he can also be in Florida and golf. He's, you know, 74, 75 years old now. Does he want to do this for four more years? It's a lot of work. That's certainly a question. It is a lot of work, but all indications now would indicate he does want to do this at least for some period of time. You know, there was some thought that he might leave the White House and go back and, you know, become more enmeshed in his businesses, you know, potentially take back over uh, Trump org, you know, his golf golf courses, his hotels. They've had some challenges while he's been president. But based on all of our reporting, he's had no palpable desire to go back and run his company. He's still more interested in the political side of things. So you think he's still in it and he and this is his main interest other than golf and, you know, talking to his friends and, you know, stirring it up that he still has some will to lead the party, to be a political figure. And you think he's going to put in the work? Well, again, I I try not to be in the prediction making business, but if you look at how he spent his time since January 20th, it would certainly seem that way. You know, he's had Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Lindsey Graham, all sorts of political advisors. Ronald McDaniel's having dinner with him down at his club tonight, the head of the RNC. You know, there are, he's spending most of his time taking political meetings, doing endorsement phone calls, talking to folks about how to spend money with his pack. He certainly does not seem to have lost a bug yet. Yeah. What do you think the key advantage he has going for him other than, you know, he had 74 million people vote for him. But like you said, he lost and he lost the Senate. He lost the House. And, you know, even though, you know, no incumbent has gained seats since George Bush did in the wake of 9-11. So that would that would seem to favor the Republicans in 2022. January 6th probably had some kind of impact on the Republican Party. What are you hearing in your reporting with that equation, with the January 6th equation and what Trump needs to do to keep this coalition together? Look, that's it. We can gauge. There certainly was a little erosion after January 6th. You've seen folks leave the party. You've seen high-profile defections. You've seen some shrinkage. That said, he remains a very influential figure with a durable coalition of voters, you know, not to cite his famous, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, but, and that, you know, I, I wouldn't lose support. There still are a lot of those folks. Uh, if you talk to party leaders across the country, I was recently down at Amelia Island where the RNC had their big meeting, and I talked to, you know, a plethora of the state chairs, and all of them said that Donald Trump remains the most popular Republican in their state. And this was after January 6th. You know, you look at Nikki Haley, who came out in a, in a fascinating Politico magazine piece by Tim Alberta and did, you know, some dancing around on, on Trump and was very critical of his actions and what he's done since November 3rd. And she's getting crushed on Facebook. I mean, thousands and thousands of commenters, you know, just destroying her who are Republicans, uh, you know, overwhelming majority. I was kind of scrolling through our very anti Nikki Haley's comments against Trump. Uh, you know, a lot of the folks in the party are still beholden to him, even if they don't want to be, because of the coalition that that he still has with him. Now, the question, the $64,000 question that I don't know the answer to, is how resilient is that? In a year, do people feel that same deep enthusiasm and support and love for Donald Trump and the Republican Party, or does that begin to fade? There's certainly a lot of 2024 potential candidates who hope that it fades and are, are maneuvering that it will fade 
but so far it does not seem to show signs of fading. And and the real question to some degree, Andrew, is if you look at what happened on January 6th and you had a president who, you know, incited a mob with aggressive incendiary rhetoric, they ransacked the Capitol, police officers were killed. It was, you know, an assault on kind of a civil democracy and that does not seem to have cost him a large chunk of his support, maybe a small chunk. So the folks who say, you know, we hope that the enthusiasm for him fades so the party can move in a different direction, I've seen no overwhelming body of evidence that that's happened. Yeah, and, and they certainly can't count on that. They certainly cannot count on that. That's 100% true. So did it surprise you that Nikki Haley got the kind of blowback she did? No, when Nikki Haley came down to speak at the RNC meeting that I was talking about, you know, Ronald McDaniel, the RNC chair, pulled her aside and said to her, you know, if you are critical of former President Trump in your speech, she had seen her prepared remarks. The crowd is not going to like that. And she was right. Uh, Haley was fairly critical of his actions on the 6th. This was in the couple of days after the 6th and received a frosty reception. You know, I have, I have talked to a lot of different quarters of the party since January 6th, you know, some of the most you know, vigorous Trump supporters, some of the folks in the middle, uh, some of the anti-Trump folks. You know, a lot of the anti-Trump folks want there to be a cavalcade of supporters running away from him, but it's not happening. Yeah, and there doesn't seem to be the kind of fear, you know, that they they had hoped that there was going to be, you know, all the fear that people had of Trump was going to dissipate, but that certainly doesn't seem to be the case. People seem to still be afraid of him. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And that's another question that it's. I'm very curious to see how that will evolve over time, right? In the, in the White House, he had the bullhorn or the megaphone of Twitter. He was on television every single day. He had all of the trappings of the most powerful office in the land. He doesn't have those things anymore. He has, you know, a large number of supporters that, that, that are with him no matter what. But some of the main weaponry that he had to instill fear in other figures is not what it used to be. Yeah, his press releases don't have the same effect as him being constantly on Twitter and, you know, his other platforms. I mean, he put together, put out that 600 word statement about McConnell, and it certainly got some, you know, some attention. And it was certainly in the news a bit, but it doesn't have the wall to wall attention that something like that would have gotten a year ago. Right. And do you think the media is a little bit more reluctant to give him that kind of wall-to-wall no matter what anyway? Well, we certainly are covering him differently because he's no longer, you know, a sitting president. I mean, his words do not have the power that they had a month and a half ago. You know, he no longer has control of the federal, you know, the nuclear weapons. He no longer has control over, you know, U.S. foreign policy. He no longer, you know, is ahead of, of a vast array of the, of the government and its agencies and, you know, how we're moving forward. So we certainly do not cover him the same way. Uh, his every utterance is not a, a definite headline. I think what we're trying to intelligently do at the Post, and I think my contemporaries at the Times and the Journal and other places are trying to do as well, is cover him in a smart and measured way, whereas you, know, you can't ignore you know, someone who has the most support in the party, who is a kingmaker of sorts. You can't ignore a former president who has shown a willing to scrap and wants to be in the action. You know, that said, not everything he does, you know, is going to be on the front page anymore. Yeah, because when it comes down to it, he's in charge of the spot Mar-a-Lago, and that's about it. Well, I 
actually a little bit more than that. I mean, I think he still has a, I, I still think he has a lot of charge of the Republican Party. As long as they let him, right? As long as they let him. And so far, that's happening because he has that 80% approval rate and he's got the donors, I guess, and he's got the enthusiasm. But like you said, it could fade. And so I think they're all waiting to see whether it fades or not, right? Because otherwise, there's going to be some new candidates that emerge and there's going to be some new people that emerge. And they might try to take up his same issues. They might try to capture his base. But there's certainly got to be some people that want to knock him off, even the kind of people that are his supporters, right? Yeah. Can anyone do it? Right. That's the question. That's the question. I mean, Nikki Haley clearly is angling for 2024. You know, Christine Nome, the governor of South Dakota, is out all over. You know, DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has bold ambitions. Uh, these folks are, are maneuvering behind the scenes. But, you know, right now, with the exception of Haley, the others have been entirely deferential to him because they don't see the opportunity to knock him off the pedestal. Now, what is it about Trump, do you think, really endures among Republican voters? I mean, you have covered the people. You know, in my mind, you and Tim Alberta understand these voters better than almost any other reporters that I know. What is it about Trumpism that endures. Forgetting about the personality of Trump, what is it about Trumpism that is giving voice to, you know, this Republican Party and and th- these constituents that we're hearing from now? <laughs> That's a question I've put a lot of time and energy thinking about. Yeah, Trump more than other folks in the Republican Party tapped into accurately that the grassroots across the country were not. Where, with the party's leadership. The party's leadership was more corporate, was more, uh, globalist, was more, you know, inclined towards moderate policies. And I think Trump realized that there was a large portion of the country that wanted to be far more right wing than immigration, that wanted to be far more populist on some of these issues, particularly around, you know, trade and the economy. And frankly, I had seen, you know, a country where they once were felt more in the majority in the mainstream change in significant ways. And I think he knew how to tap into some of, you know, the culture wars that the Republican Party had had left behind. I mean, we can, you know, joke about its importance or whatever, but let's say the standing for the national anthem. I mean, if you go to, you know, Trump bastions across the country, I mean, you would see bars that were cutting off the NFL that were no longer showing the games on the weekend because yeah. he had made that such an issue. You know, repeatedly, uh, even though by all my reporting, he, you know, is not a man of particular faith, is not someone who prays regularly, does not read the Bible, you know. But he understood what to say in these speeches that really pegged to people who were in that category. You look at the flag. I mean, you know, he would often talk about burning, you know, prison terms for burning the American flag. And there were just lots of these wedge issues where I think people across the country saw his supporters, not not people in general, but his supporters across the country, kind of saw him taking on the things that they like seeing taken on. And one of the reasons that he was so good at it in, you know, fomenting these these battles and understanding where the pulse of the party was, was his constant uh, consumption of Fox News and his constant consumption yeah. of right wing media. He understood 
what was percolating in the ether and then would take the powers of the presidency and would, you know, gravitate towards those things. And he created a kind of remarkably durable bond with a large portion of the country. Now, the problem was he created that at the expense of all else. So he had 30, 40 percent of the country based on the polling and the survey and the data you read that love him no matter what. And then a large portion of the country that would never vote for him for dog catcher. Right. So uh, there was this. He just, he just, you know, was all about the base at all of times. He was thinking about, you know, his political base, his political supporters, the exception of a few issues. I mean, it was basically all about the base all the time. And I think he, he built some really deep inroads with folks. And, you know, one of the, one of the other points I'll make here and I'll stop rambling is if you talk to Trump supporters anywhere across the country, one of the first things they would say to you is he's a fighter. And there was this, this general perception, you know, I traveled all over the country, and you would ask people why they like him. And they would say, oh, you know, he tweets stuff we don't like, and I wish he wouldn't do this or that or the other. He's a little bit coarse, but he's fighting. He's just fighting. And people like that. They just thought that he was fighting for them uh, nonstop. Now, you know, in the actual reporting, it may become evident to you if you're a close reader that maybe he wasn't always fighting for them as much as they thought, but they certainly believe that. Yeah, and he might not have gotten any kind of legislation passed that helped them particularly or helped them at all, but they certainly felt like he gave voice to their grievances. Correct. They felt that their grievances were his grievances and that he, more than other Republican leaders, had heard them and had espoused and expressed what they wanted espoused and expressed. You know, it's very interesting. It's almost as if he spent an enormous amount of time studying what Roger Ailes did with Fox News, paying attention to everything Roger Ailes said and did, including Roger Ailes' strategy of forming a niche so Fox News could be enormously successful in the cable wars and applying that exactly to his campaign and applying that to his way of governing. I think there's some truth in that. I mean, he had been a long-time avid watcher of Fox News. Ailes was the former president's friend. You know, he loved calling into Fox. He loved the antics of, of cable television. I mean, you know, even while in the Oval Office, he would have the ratings brought to him regularly so he could see what shows were doing what ratings, particularly on Fox. Yeah. You know, it was his business at the core of of who he was, he was a cable TV guy. And I think understanding the vagaries of cable TV and what makes a good segment and what makes folks like you more and what attracts viewers, what gets ratings, I think those were all key parts of his political uh, success as much as he had it. And so in the process of that, he also boosted up probably the entire media establishment. So there's a lot of questions now as to, you know, without Trump, him being deplatformed, him not making news every day, what happens to that media establishment? Do people have less interest in the media? Do people have less interest in the news? Personally, I don't think so because we have, you know, this massive story of COVID and we also have massive political upheavals going on. You know, even though we have a Democratic Senate, a Democratic House and a Democratic president, these are very close margins on, by all accounts. So there's still a political fight going on at every turn. Yeah, I don't think we know yet what's going to happen. 
I mean, if you look across the media landscape, yeah, there was a surge in subscribers and readers to the Washington Post. There was a yeah. surge in subscribers and readers to the New York Times. You know, there was, you know, record ratings on a lot of these shows. And love him or hate him, Trump in some ways was must see television. People wanted to read about everything that he was doing. I agree with you that COVID remains something of high reader interest. I think there will be fights that have high reader interest, you know, and then there's a large portion of the country that I think is, is maybe not a large portion. I don't really know how to characterize it, but I think a larger than it was before that now are highly attuned to politics and want to read, you know, everything that's happening. Whether the future of, of Washington coverage generates the same national and international attention that Trump did, I don't know that it will. I mean, <laughs> there was a great piece that Katie Rogers did in the New York Times over the weekend where she talked about, you know, Washington for once having a normal weekend. The President Biden sent eight tweets all weekend, and they were all, in her words, grounded in reality. There was no desire to make any sort of massive headlines on Saturday morning at, at 7 a.m. You know, if you look at the last five or six weeks of the Biden administration, you know, they've been a far more disciplined operation. For the most part, they've made news on their terms. You have not seen a president undercutting his press secretary or his advisors with a morning tweet. You have not seen a burst of morning tweets that make news that drives the rest of the day that catches the whole White House by surprise. Yeah, he's been soft-spoken and measured. You have not seen the personnel drama that played out in the early months of the Trump administration. I mean, by all accounts, it has been less of a reality show presidency. And, you know, I was joking with Jonathan Martin of the New York Times the other day about this. It's like, how many people want to to really dive in to the minutia of reconciliation, you know, and how <laughs> a bill passes through the Senate, right? Right. I'm not sure that that will generate the same levels of just palpable interest in what was going on that day. I mean, certainly it's important. I mean, certainly we have, you know, I'm not on the White House team now at the Washington Post, but seven of my colleagues are. We kept the team, you know, the same size as we did for Trump. I mean, right. we will be doing daily and ambitious coverage of, of the new administration. So, I mean, there's certainly a lot to read. I just think time will tell. Will as many people be interested in reading? Well, it's incredible. I mean, you even had a relatively quiet confirmation hearing for Merrick Garland yesterday. And you've already had some Republicans. You know, I saw Tom Tillis from North Carolina already came out earlier and said that he was supporting Merrick Garland. So it looks like there will be, you know, support to get him confirmed. You know, the only high profile battle so far has been your attendant at OMB. And, you know, it looks like she may not have the votes to get confirmed, but, you know, by the standards of the Trump administration, <laughs> even that has not had the wattage, right? I mean, that has been kind of a, it's been simmering, it's an interesting fight, but it doesn't have a just flat out unmitigated drama that some parts of the Trump administration have. Right. And so, like, what we're seeing so far is professionalism, competence, quiet, the knives don't seem to be out, all of that. And, you know, a lot of people are refreshed by it. Well, you know, to make a point on that, Andrew, I mean, during the campaign, 
when President Trump would call Joe Biden Sleepy Joe, there was a moment where some of his advisors, particularly Kellyanne Conway, said to him, a lot of people after four years of you don't see Sleepy as an insult. In fact, they might like Sleepy. And I think you're casting him as this doddering, you know, old man who's going to go to bed early and is sleepy. But people want some common stability. They felt a lot of whiplash. Even some of your supporters, you know, think sometimes you are a bit too much. So I'm not sure if sleepy is a pejorative insult that you think it is. And I think there was a sense of that. So this will be my final question, Josh. You know, one of the things that I've noticed with President Biden is that he seems very much in command and he's barely raising his voice above a whisper most of the time. He has this sensibility about him that he's always had that he is from the working class. He is a person of the people. He's the kind of person that has always appealed to what we think of as the typical Trump voter out in these flyover states. Do you think that those kinds of people are going to get peeled off a little bit as they see a President Biden start doing things for them, COVID relief, infrastructure, so on and so forth. Does that does that start to happen? Well, it depends on how much he's able to get done and how successful he is at selling it to those folks. I mean, it's certainly you look at the key states that helped him win this election were states, you know, that Trump won in 2016, the Rust Belt states, you know, industrial states, where they swung back to bite, where they did not vote for, for Clinton. So it's certainly true that you have more support for him, at least if, you know, if you look at the numbers and, and the polling and the election results uh, in November than you have for Clinton. But, you know, it's still early in his presidency. I mean, he hasn't done a major press conference yet, obviously because of COVID. He hasn't done an international trip. He's had very limited, you know, domestic travel so far because of COVID. He has kind of a skeleton staff. You know, they're not packing offices and packing rooms in the White House like the Trump administration did because of COVID. I mean, we're really in, you know, the the early days in every way what the presidency, you know, is going to be. And, you know, what has struck me, you know, as as a watcher of these things, even though I'm not covering Biden, uh, but cover Trump very carefully, is that, you know, when it came to COVID, Trump had this kind of accentuate the positive and, you know, eliminate the negative outlook to COVID. You know, it's going to go away. There's not going to be that many deaths, you know, COVID, 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 very derisive towards it. Now, whether the Biden administration is able to make, you know, an entire overhaul of some of the shortcomings of the Trump administration, it's too early to be seen, right? Yeah. But in the way he talks about it, there's a recognition that, you know, there's 500,000 deaths in this country, and we're going to talk about grief, and, you know, we're going to encourage people to stay at home, and we're going to talk about how hard it is, and these were things the former president never really did that Biden is doing. And I think that is going to be the main test of the first year of his presidency. Can they get enough vaccines in people's arms to get the country reopened by the summer? With that, does the unemployment rate fall, you know, precipitously? Does it get back under control? How quickly can he turn the country back to normal again? And I think his people understand that. Now, whether they can do that or not, you know, is a different question. But if he can do that, I think you're going to see support for him grow across the country. And if a year from now, 
we're still, you know, enmeshed in a society that has not gone back to normal. There's a good chance he'll he'll pay the repercussions for that. Josh Dawsey, fascinating as always. Thanks so much for your insight today and helping us get to the truth of the matter about some of these really complex issues. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, buddy. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 